Welcome back to Anecdotally Speaking, a podcast that helps leaders and sellers find and tell great oral stories. Hi, I'm Sean Callahan, And I'm Mark Shank. Now, what have you been up to this week, Sean? Oh, I tell you what, I've, apart from um, sort of getting ready for the sort of travels overseas, I'm, I'm doing some of our programs in San Francisco and also in New York. So that's probably me where I've, I've had my focus. But I'm also doing a lot of podcasting, you know, that's the other <laughs> thing that's uh, in top of mind for me. Yep. And it's probably a bit late for many listeners, but if you are interested in attending our programs, we're running public programs in Melbourne and Sydney in late March and in Hong Kong in mid-March. So on our website, on our events page, all the details are there. Yes, just jump in and you can sign up. Uh, we use Eventbrite, so you just jump up and buy your tickets there. So today's story, what are we looking at? I believe you've got a good one for us. Oh, see, I hate that. When somebody sets the expectation high, I believe under-promise and over-deliver okay, is the, is the philosophy. A, I hear it's a crappy it's story. It's a crappy story. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we've demonstrated uh, that you can get stories from many different sources. So research papers, movies, real-life experiences. Well, this, is, this one is from a book. Mm-hmm. And the book is The Element by Sir Ken Robinson. So it's a book about how finding your passion changes everything. This story's set in the 1930s, and there's a little girl, Gillian. She's eight years old, and her schoolwork is a big problem. Her handwriting's very messy. She does not submit her assignments on time. The teacher has to interrupt the class because Gillian will just be staring out the window. And if she's not doing that, then she's often doing things that disrupt the other children. And the teachers are very concerned. Her prospects, her educational prospects, are pretty bleak. So they write to the parents and say, look, Julian's educational prospects are not good. She needs to go to a special school. And of course, back in the 1930s, the special school was for people with disabilities. And it's not a very nurturing environment. This is a major problem. Parents are very worried and the mother takes Julian to see a psychologist. And she gives Julian strict instructions. Okay, Julian, this is very important. Put her best dress on. And she said, now, you mustn't fidget, so I want you to sit on your hands. Right. So they're in the psychologist's office, beautiful leather chairs, the wood panelling on the walls, and uh, the psychologist is sitting there talking to the mother but looking at Gillian. The conversation goes on for a little while, and then he said, Gillian, your mum and I are going to go and step out into the corridor for a moment. I just want to have a quick talk to her. Please just wait here. We won't be long. The psychologist and the mum got up and walked out of the room, and as they walked out, the psychologist turned the radio on. They walked out, closed the door, and they looked back through the window in the door, and the psychologist said, let's see what happens. And what they saw was that the music was playing, and Gillian started swaying. And then she stands up, and then she starts moving very gracefully. She's dancing, and it's beautiful. And the psychologist said, your daughter's not sick. She's a dancer. And so the parents take Gillian to a dance school. Julian talked about that experience where she goes to the dance school and suddenly she's with people who are just like her. They have to move to express themselves. She becomes a famous dancer. Yeah. So like so famous, she became the prima ballerina for the London Ballet. Yes. When she finished dancing, she became a choreographer and set up her own dance school and she became very well known as a choreographer. Later in her career, she met a guy called Andrew Lloyd Webber. Ah, small guy. Yeah, just a small guy. And together, she and Andrew Lloyd Webber, she did the choreography for Cats and Phantom of the Opera, some of the biggest stage productions ever. Yeah. Her name was Gillian Lynn. Had the psychologist not said that to the mother, then maybe she would never have found her passion and gone on to achieve such an amazing career. And the world would have lost this, this fantastic talent. Yeah. What a wonderful story. I love it. I love that story. Every time I hear that story, I really picture it. and It's a, it's a lovely story. And I, and I think one of the reasons why 
it does resonate, well, at least one of the reasons, is that it's a story about a child. And we know we talk about the fact that the very top of the hierarchy of things that we care about is avoiding death, and right underneath that is safety of children, you know, and ensuring our children are nurtured and, and uh, helped along the way. And that's an example of that. So it sort of sits right up there in terms of what we care about as a species. And, and then, of course, it has all those connections of things in our own lives, parents and children and schools and you know, things that totally relatable to us, right? Whether it's in the 30s or today, we sort of get a good sense of how you could be really concerned about that. And it does build up a level of, you know, there's a real challenge here that this family is facing essentially with their daughter. And, and I think that is what creates a lot of the dynamic in this story, right? Yeah. And one of the things that for me makes that story work is the high stakes. Yes. The threat of special school. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's, it's right there. The other thing too, is that like any good story, it's extremely visual story. It's interesting, you know, when I tell that story, in addition to having the girls, Jillian, sit on her hands on the sofa, I say that her legs don't touch the ground so that, you know, you can sort of imagine her sort of sitting up there and in this massive big leather, yes, indeed. you know, sort of lounge in a psychologist's office and, and how she's really a fish out of water. And so I think the visual elements are, are super important. The more you can make her small and in this big sort of system that she's in, the more contrast that you're creating. But what do you reckon? What other things are going to be important to make this story work? Well, I think that there's some key details that are absolutely essential. Like in every story, there are some key details without which the story doesn't work. Yeah. So the fact that she was struggling at school, that's important. But the threat of the special school, that's a key detail. Yes. Another key detail that's vital in that story is the psychologist turning on the radio. Yeah. The story doesn't work without that. Without right? that, there's no story. So it's really worthwhile when you're about to use a story is to understand what are the key details. What are the basics that, that hold that story together? Yes. And I think it's so interesting listening to people retell that story. You know, we do that exercise in our workshops. We get people to learn the story and then retell it. Just the inventiveness of <laughs> the different ways they come up with for the psychologist and the mother to see Gillian of the other side of that wall, right? Yep. And, you know, we've had two-way mirrors. We've had, you know, different types of windows. And in the door, there's a window. or Maybe the door is ajar and they're peeking around the corner of the door. Or they, or they go outside and they peer in through a window. Yeah, I yeah. know. It's just a classic, isn't it? But it doesn't matter, of course. Exactly. It's, those sort of things are the things that it just needs to happen. They need to be able to see her dancing. And as long as you achieve that, that's fine. How you do it is no big deal. Yep. Yeah, exactly. I think the other thing that sort of reminds me as I listen to that story is just that driving force that pulls people through stories, which is the audience saying to themselves, what's happening? What happens next? Yeah. And if they've got that mindset, if, they, if you are able to generate that, I think you then end up with a very powerful story. And the nice thing about this story is that it starts off with a girl with a problem they go to the psychologist, but then it sort of ratchets itself up. She does well. She's a prima ballerina. She's a choreographer. Next thing you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber, Cats, Phantom of the Opera, right? It just keeps going up and up and up, right? And I think there's something in it. It's a rags to riches type story where you sort of feel that, okay, you know, there's something really transformative in what you're hearing here. Yeah. One of the things that this story also shows is that stories are almost infinitely compressible and expandable. Now, in the book, Ken Robinson takes three and a half pages 
to tell the story of Gillian. Now we've got in our workshops, we use a, uh, a three or four paragraph version. I'm not sure how long that oral version I just told would have taken. I feel that would have gone for maybe two minutes. Yeah, I think so. So depending on the context in which you find yourself, you can tell that story very quickly and simply because you know what the key details are. You can tell it in three and a half pages. A lot depends on the context within which you're telling the story. Yeah, it's true. I mean, written stories are nearly always longer than oral stories. And part of it is because they're filling in all of the context for the reader and assuming they really know nothing. But it's so interesting, when you hear stories being told in organisations, there's all this understood knowledge. Everyone shares a knowledge, so you don't actually have to fill in all those details. You can have a, like a story shorthand. It's a story shorthand. It's like, I talk about this in my book, actually, where I tell a story that my dad told me, and it was about the assassination of JFK and how they had to reenact it as Marines in the US in the 60s, and he was one of the shooters that had to reenact it. And I tell it from a written sort of literary perspective, and it's quite a long story, but then I tell the oral version, and there's a whole bunch of things as he would have told it to us kids. And of course, you know, he doesn't have to say he's a Marine, he doesn't have to say who JFK is. You know, there's all these things that you just assume knowledge that the group has. And you can zip through some of these stories quite quickly when they're organisational stories. Yeah. Thing that we that we like to chat about too sometimes is endings. Yeah, and we we kind of have a bit of a disagreement about endings. Yeah, and I, I don't know how big the disagreement is, but it's certainly a, a slightly different emphasis, right? You know, my preference is to finish a story and don't have a point at the end. To just sort of finish it, let the audience work it out, right? right. And so, so that so they they own that story. Right, so your basic story pattern is relevant statement, story. Correct. Okay, and mine is relevant statement, story, point. Yes, exactly. So I'm certainly not hard and fast on that, and I've been thinking about the different endings of stories, and certainly those two are are valid endings. And then there's two others, and that is getting to the end of the story and kind of posing a question to yourself. It's sort of a rhetorical question. So you get to the end of the story and you say, you know, I guess that story really got me thinking that it's so important not to try to ram a round peg in a square hole, right? And and it just, it gives a point of view, but it doesn't sound like you're telling them what to think. It's just sort of saying, this is what I think. And I think, I find that's quite a softer way of getting into that ending of the story. Mm -hmm. But then the last way is simply to ask a straight out question to the audience. You finish the story and then you just say, so did that conjure any memories for you? And hopefully they would share a story back to you. Again, you're back in conversation, which is what you want to do. So yeah, I think there's probably other ways to end stories as well. And endings are important. They are. Endings are very important. So uh, you don't want your story to just fizzle. Exactly, exactly. Of course, you know, the, the famous psychologist Kahneman talks about how you know, you can listen to a record and just be totally immersed in the beautiful symphony. But if the record scratches at the end, you go, oh, it's totally ruined. <laughs> right? It's almost like you discount those first 10 minutes of listening. Like they don't count for anything now because the end is being ruined. It's that whole, what does he call it? Sort of like the, the peak end. Peak end effect. The peak end effect. Yeah. So, so during the story, there are peaks. And so there's peaks very important and ends very, very important, important. Yeah. so one of the things that you should always do is practice you should practice your stories but also practice how you're going to land it how you're going to finish it yeah very good advice well that's a great story so where would we use this where where are some of the places that this story would make sense 
Well, the first one is where you're looking at somebody in your organization who's performing, underperforming, and our normal response is generally, we need to manage them out of the business. Yeah. Maybe that's not the solution. Maybe we just need to find the thing that they're compatible with, the thing that they love doing. And, and so instead of managing them out of the business, maybe you can restructure the role. Yeah. So you could sort of be in a meeting to sort of say, you know what, sometimes people just don't fit into that niche that we expect them to fit into. Actually, there was a really interesting experience uh, we heard about this young girl, Gillian, and then you start to tell that Gillian story, right? So again, it just helps you make that point. I've actually had the experience of seeing Gillian's story play out in real life, but with an organizational colleague. Oh, yeah. What happened there? Well, when I joined IBM, so we're talking late 90s, I joined about the same time as this other fellow, won't say his name. He was a sales guy to start with. He was hopeless, right? <laughs> hopeless sales guy. Didn't That's seem not like, good. Not a good start. He just didn't. He wasn't selling anything. And, and he, they persisted with him for a long time, uh, say 18 months or so. And then they switched him over to be a manager. Turns out the guy is a brilliant people manager. You know, he just gets the best out of people. So this is, I don't know, what, 15 years ago when I worked at IBM back then. And I saw him just last year. The guy has now risen through the ranks. He's now vice president. He's up in Singapore. He looks after the whole sort of software division of this one particular part of the business. The guy's done extremely well. It's the Gillian Lin story. Yeah, right? absolutely. But it's a, it's something out of your business. So I bet you could find examples like that inside your organization and you could use the Gillian Lin story or you could use your version, which is the one you found in your organization. Yep. So in fact, what we're saying there is that this is another use for stories. They can act as templates to help you find other stories which are just like that, but maybe more relevant to the audience that you're talking to. Yeah, indeed. And I guess with Gen Y, millennials, they talk about how they, they regularly change roles. Yep. And a lot of time it's because they're looking for the role that helps them find their passion. Right. And I think it's a great thing. Yeah. It's a great thing because we know that when people find their passion, you know, they're so much more effective in what they do. More importantly, they're happier. Yeah. Makes a big difference to life, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, this story, what are we going to give it? Story rating? I'm going to give it an 8.5. Eight and a half. Yeah. Is that the highest you've given a story? It is the highest I've given it a story. It is, right. Well, I, I mean, I love this story too. I'm going to give it an 8. But here's the thing that, I don't know, it sort of makes me have a double check on this because I love hearing that story. And it might be just context, but I don't tend to tell that story that often. I tell it when I'm teaching people, but I don't tell it in conversation. Actually, you're right. And that's a great story and love it. It makes a really important business point, but it's not one that I've used in real life, working with a leader, trying to influence them to go one way or the other. One of the key things, it might be a great story, but if it doesn't have a real business application. Yeah. It could be to do with, you know, if we were in an environment, say we were back in the corporate world, in that environment more often about people making judgments about other colleagues and how well they're going maybe we'd be telling that story left right and center right? yeah yeah perhaps whereas you know in our world we were sort of like arm's length to that okay so i guess one of the questions for the listeners is would you use this story and so i would love to get some comments uh if you think that yes you could see how you could use this story love to hear that mm, yeah put them in the blog comments you know just go to the website Whack them in there and we'll, we'll talk about it in our next episode. Fantastic. Fantastic. Okay, so a little review, summary. What are the sort of key lessons that we're trying to draw out here? Stories about kids are things that we're really focused on as humans. We're really interested in them. So that story ticks that box. Yep. How you end stories. There's a range of different ways of doing it. You know, you got to just make sure you've tried out and it really is a good ending, a solid ending, and one that you feel comfortable telling. 
Yeah, so don't let them peter out. And I guess uh, another key point from today's episode is about knowing the key details of your story. What are the elements of the story that are essential for it to work? And you need to have that clearly on your mind. Terrific. Well, guys, thanks again for listening to Anecdotally Speaking. Yeah, tune in next week for another episode on how to put stories to work.